The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder, and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear. For God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, once again. How are you guys doing today? Get these lights on here. We are going to pray, and then we are going to jump into this third commandment this morning. So would you, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for a morning that is set aside for you to really put you back in the place that you belong, sort of the center of our hearts, at the top of our minds, with your praises at the tip of our tongues, with our hands lifted to you. Father, as we get to participate in in worship of you and be reminded of your goodness and your graciousness through the liturgy and the reading of the word, Father, we're changed. That, That your word 
changes us in, in such a profound way that we aren't the same. And so we thank you for that, and we ask, Father, that as we dig into your word in this third commandment this morning, that you would do more of it, that we, as we would behold Christ and, and survey his beauty, would we become more like him? So would you unstop our ears? Would you soften our hearts to receive what you have for us this morning? Father, would you use me, a man who is, has failed often at this commandment, even this week, and would you use, um, use my weakness to shine forth your strength and your beauty and the power of the gospel? Father, I, I ask that your spirit would accompany um, the words this morning, that for the hours that I've labored um, in preparing, it's, it's useless unless the spirit shows up and, and works through me and, and through my words. And so we turn to him in dependence um, upon those things. And Father, I pray that the, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. All right. Well, we have been going through the Ten Commandments lately. Actually, we've been, in, in a larger sense, we've been going through the book of Exodus over the last um, 20-some weeks, and we've sort of taken a detour to kind of sit down in the Ten Commandments. So each week we're picking up a new commandment and, and sort of pulling out everything that's packed in there. And so if you are a, a numbers person, that means after today we'll be about 30% of the way through uh, the Ten Commandments. Um, and, and you might be wondering, like, what's the relevance of the Ten Commandments? Why would we, why would we spend 10 weeks studying rules or commandments that have been laid out thousands of years ago, right? Well, the reason is, is because Jesus said himself, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it's going to be fulfilled, right? The Ten Commandments are here to stay. There's a lot to to learn from them. They're, They're good guides for our life. And for this reason, the Ten Commandments are widely known here in the United States and around the world. We see them um, as decorations in courtrooms and city halls. But the problem is that these Ten Commandments are typically known in sort of a surface-level way, right? And, and in, in just understanding the surface level, we miss the heart of these commandments. And, and what ends up happening is we treat them like a list of prohibitions, things that we do, can or can't do rather than seeing them as life-promoting guides from God himself, right? To see them as a path toward the good life, a life of flourishing and a life of joy. Now, I think when we do this, this is our our natural tendency, what we do is we miss the heart of God for his people. And what, what he's been showing us in the book of Exodus is his heart for his people is to set them free in order that they would live free, In the immediate context of Exodus, we see God's people, the Israelites, freed from Egyptian slavery. But in the broader context of history, we are freed from sin, and therefore God commands us how we should live in freedom. Essentially, he's showing us how we are to live as if the way that we've been designed to live. And so when our understanding of these Ten Commandments is skewed in this way, when we reduce it to to moralism and rules of do's and don'ts, what we see is that the Ten Commandments start to crush us rather than promote life. 
And so to fight against these tendencies and this view of the Ten Commandments, this is essentially why we're going through the Ten Commandments, to understand them rightly, to get to the heart of these commandments. And so today we're going to work through the third commandment, which is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And honestly, this was the commandment I was looking forward to the least out of all these Ten Commandments. To me, when I was just thinking about it, it seems basic, it seems... I mean, I, I was bought into it. It seems moralistic. It's just essentially watch your mouth, right? But, but as I studied and as I dug into this, I was shocked to, to find that this commandment is far more important than I ever thought. It's far more reaching than I had ever considered before. In fact, as we go through Scripture, when we rightly understand this third commandment, we see it popping up all throughout Scripture, Tim Keller actually says that this commandment is the most profound of the commandments because it talks about the thoroughness of the gospel. See, it's, it's profound in the way that it nuances all throughout Scripture. It's profound in the way that it affects the Christian life and our eternity. So to rightly understand the third commandment, we must see that it's more than just not saying, oh my God or using the Lord's name frivolously. See, at the heart of this commandment, we see that it's a commandment about hypocrisy. It's saying, don't say one thing and mean another. Don't pretend to be something you aren't. Don't pretend to have access to something you don't have access to. Now, if I were to do a survey of the congregation here, I'm sure that one of the top pet peeves would be hypocrisy, right? We all have that buddy who's a a self-proclaimed health nut, criticizes your food choices or your lack of exercise, and then come 10 o'clock at night, he's sitting there with a tub of ice cream just pounding it. He's a hypocrite. Right? Or, or the girlfriend who says, you know, beauty is on the inside, yet here she is laboring hours in front of the mirror. And at the end of the day, she's really not that nice. It's hypocrisy. Or the person who says they're tolerant of all people, except for intolerant people, that's hypocrisy. Right? This, this doesn't sit well with us. The, and these examples of hypocrisy are endless And they all irritate us, but they're petty in their own way. But nonetheless, they are bothersome. See, but God has no tolerance for hypocrisy in the ultimate things. And one of the ultimate things is to take the Lord's name. So we're going to see that there's a right way to take the Lord's name, and there's a wrong way to take the Lord's name. And what we're going to see here in verse 7 is that the stakes for this commandment are high. There's a lot riding on our ability to keep this third commandment. Just take a look. If you have your Bible, there's a Bible down at your, at your feet or your, your app. Take a, take a look. We'll open up to Exodus 20, um, verse 7. And this is the commandment, and it's full. It says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not, here's, here's the high stakes here, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So he's saying if you are hypocritically or frivolously using the Lord's name, you will be counted guilty before God. And this isn't a sort of, it's not just a feeling of guilt, right? It's not, it's not the, oh man, I really shouldn't have done that. 
Like it's, it's not like you eat too many Oreos and you get that sugar belly guilt feeling. It's not that kind of guilt. This is a, a legal standing before God sort of a guilt where the almighty judge looks at you and sees your wrongdoing and you're held account- accountable for that. And the consequences for this guilt, there are consequences for this guilt. No, no convicted criminal gets off the hook. See, our guilt condemns us. It marks, marks us by God's disapproval with us, and it removes us from a life of blessing and of flourishing. Now, with the stakes this high, this should trouble us enough to, to, to consider what the third commandment is about. We should think deeply about the implications that this has on, on our life. So I want to ask a question. What does it mean to take the Lord's name in vain? How do we, and how do we keep from breaking this commandment? And then the positive way to ask this is, how do we honor the Lord's name and experience the blessings that comes from doing that? And the thing is that there are outrageous blessings when we keep the Lord's name and honor the Lord's name. And so today, that is where we're heading. That's where we're going. So again, if you're open your Bible, typically at this point, I would read the whole passage, uh, but we only have one verse to do today, so that's cool. Uh, You might be thinking we might get out early today, but I wouldn't hold your breath uh, because there's a lot to unpack here. So let's, again, I want to read verse 7 and sort of set the tone again. This is the Lord himself saying, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, to teach the Ten Commandments correctly, I have to preface every single one of these Ten Commandments by saying that God has already saved his people. The law comes after grace. God is not giving them these rules and saying, hey, if you follow these rules, then maybe I'll come down and I'll help you guys out. He has already saved his people, and now he is teaching them how to live free. The, The Israelites here, Their captors have been defeated. The chains have been broken. The shackles have been taken off. God has freed them from their bondage and given them a new life, and now God is telling them how to live in light of this reality. So we have to see that. It's important to see the law comes after grace. And he's saying that to live the free life, one of the things you need to hold to is to this third commandment. You need to not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And we have to, we have to kind of do some background work here. What, what is so important about the Lord's name? What, what's in a name? Well, first off, we need to see that God's name is significant, but, but names themselves are significant in general, right? One of the most important things a parent will do is to name their child. It's not an easy task, right? You've got nine months, essentially, to figure it out. And you're laboring, you're going through list after list after list, trying to find the perfect name, right? This is a name that will stick with them all their life, a a name that will, in a way, kind of create the foundation for them, that tell them what kind of a person they're going to be, in a sense. It's not an easy task. And, and, And maybe if you're a parent, you haven't put a lot of thoughtfulness into the way you name your kid, and that's that's fine. I'm not you can't go change it now, it's too late. But here's the reality is that you did as a parent or your parents did name you. 
Now, this is significant because it is an act of authority. It's, it's the same sort of authority that God gave Adam in the Garden of Eden when he told them to name the animals, right? Adam was delegated authority to name the animals. And so God gives parents the same sort of authority to name their kids. And so the next time your kids are acting out on you, you can kindly remind them, I gave you your name, right? That's authority for you. And we think about it, name, you know, that the act of naming is an authority move. And when you think about it, who gave God his name? Who named God? We didn't do it. In fact, God chose to reveal his name to Moses in the burning bush back in Exodus 3. He says, when Moses asks for his name, you see that? Moses, Moses didn't give God a name. Moses asked for God's name, and God said, my name is Yahweh. When you see that word, it's uh, Y-H-W-H, or in the ESV translation of your Bible, it's, it's Lord when it's all case or all uppercase. That's the name of, of God right there, and that means literally I am or I am being. But this word or this name Yahweh is more than just a title. When we understand the Hebrew dialect and how names work, um, he, the Hebrew understanding of names tells us that this name sort of ascribes an identity, it's, it's sort of the essence of a being. So this name represents the entirety of God's holiness and his character and his glorious attributes. We see this when David is, is writing in Psalm 8. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Now, he's not talking about the name, those four letters. He's talking about the essence of God. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic are you. See, this is why the third commandment is so important. It's about esteeming God. It's to honor God himself, not just his name. So the third commandment in the affirmative, that is what to do rather than not what to do, what not to do, is to honor the Lord by honoring his name. In Calvin's Institute, he says this, the third commandment becomes us to regulate our minds and our tongues so as to never think, think or speak of God and his mysteries without reverence and great soberness and never in estimating his works to have any feeling toward him but one of deep veneration. He's saying here that there should be a profound sense of wonder and awe at the name of God because it represents God himself. And what he has done. And so we express that awe and reverence by using God's name in a way that promotes his glory, that promotes his holiness, that promotes his praise rather than diminishes it. Now, there's a lot of ways that we fail to do this, there's a lot of ways that we misuse the Lord's name. And if you listen for it in your own life and others, you will see that in the most basic sense, we misuse God's name very often, right? We say, oh my God. We, we use Jesus' name as an expletive, right? And there's so many other expressions of this. We even have acronyms and bitmojis and emojis to, to allow us to take the Lord's name in vain. Now, if you're like me, um, I grew up in a, a good Christian home. I was catechized, actually, 
through Luther's um, small catechism. And so from a very young age, I understood to not take the Lord's name in vain. And basically what that meant to me is I, I can't say God's name in certain places and sentences. And the fear behind it was not so much that I'm breaking the law, it's I'm going to end up getting a mouthful of soap at the end of the day. Right? It doesn't taste good. But even then, even then, even though I didn't use the Lord's name specifically, I would find ways to do it. It was sort of like a, a knee-jerk reaction, some Christianese language. It's, oh my gosh. Or, or man, I can't believe how much I say this. Jeez. Right? That's just another way of using the Lord's name in vain, sort of shorthand or, or to pseudo use the Lord's name in vain. And I don't want to get legalistic here. But I want to show you just how common it is for us to misuse the Lord's name, to use it in a way that is not reverent. When we use the Lord's name or pseudo-misuse the Lord's name, we do so with flippancy and reverence. Like I said, and and like I already laid out, it's not just the Lord's name we're misusing or, or, or we're, we're tarnishing that. It's God's character at large. Misusing the Lord's name isn't a matter of poor word selection. It's blasphemy. Philip Ryken, commentator on this passage, he says that God's name has deep spiritual significance. So to treat it like something worthless is profanity in the truest sense of the word. It is to treat something holy and sacred as common and secular. To dishonor God's name in any way is to denigrate his holiness. You see, when we see using the Lord's name in vain, and, and, and like I said, this is, just, this is just the surface level of this commandment. When we misuse the Lord's name in vain, it is a big deal. It's a serious offense. The second half of verse 7 tells us this. tells us that we'll be found guilty before the Lord, condemnable. And this isn't an empty threat that we should just breeze by and sort of shuffle over. This is serious here. God is not messing around. In fact, um, there's a shocking example of this in Leviticus 24 where a man blasphemed the name of God and he cursed God and then he was justly judged for his sins. God had him stoned. He's not messing around here. God said, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemies the Lord shall surely be put to death. Now, this is alarming here. God isn't messing around about this. He cares deeply about his glory and his honor. And I'm not saying this uh, to to sort of scare you. I mean, I, I hope you're, I don't know, scare is maybe not the right word. But I want your ears to perk up a little bit here. But I also don't want you to think that God is up in the sky with a lightning bolt ready to strike you down the moment you misuse his name. That's not the case. In fact, if that's the case, I probably wouldn't be here today. I, full disclosure, um, so I, I, have, um, I have kidney disease and I've got uh, uh, Crohn's disease. And I'm currently on a, a treatment of steroids and steroids mess with me uh, in probably the most undesirable way. I'm short-tempered. Um, oh, it, I'm, anyway, you don't need to know all of it. But case in point, steroids, 
plus building a bookshelf this weekend doesn't go well, right? Frustration and my knee-jerk reaction. And, I, and here's the funny part. Not funny. It's, it's, con, it's convicting. But the whole time I'm building this bookshelf, I'm thinking through my sermon, thinking through this third commandment, and my knee-jerk reaction is to take the Lord's name in vain. Thankfully, God does not strike me down right there. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. And Scripture tells us that God is gracious and he's compassionate. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he gives us opportunity for repentance. This is good news. But nonetheless, misusing the Lord's name is blasphemy against his holiness. It's a serious offense with serious repercussions. Now, there are more ways than one of misusing the Lord's name. In the Old Testament, um, there are are several different examples, three primary examples. Um, Those are sorcery, which is to use God's name in a mystical way to accomplish something, right? To, To speak on behalf of the dead, tarot cards, palm reading, bizarre stuff like that, fortune telling, that would sort of fall under the category of Um, using the Lord's name in vain, getting access to something that you otherwise wouldn't have access to. Another example would be false prophecy. We see this a lot, um, actually, in in the Old Testament where men come before a congregation or a group of people and say, thus says the Lord, and the Lord did not say thus. What they're doing is using God's name to, to manipulate people, to get them to go in a certain direction without actually having the reality behind God's, God's name of what he says to do. Another example would be false oaths. To use God's name to persuade others that you're telling the truth. Right? These are just a few examples of where we see this coming up. And if you were to trace these things throughout history, there are several examples of how this commandment has been broken and is still being broken today. Specifically, with false prophecy. There are all kinds of of examples of men and women using the Lord's name to advance their own agenda by using God's name. Just think about it. Native Americans have been persecuted and oppressed. We have seen African Americans persecuted and oppressed and driven to slavery by God's name? Can you just wrap your minds around this for a moment? This earlier, uh, I guess back in 2016, there was a movie that called out, came out called Birth of a Nation. Um, it was the Nat Turner story, and there's a question as to how accurate it was. But there was part of the movie, um, and actually part of the history itself, where slave owners would force other literate black slaves to preach to their fellow slaves that their obligation was to be a slave because God said so. What a heinous use of God's name. We see another example with Nazis using God's name to advance their own agenda. Another example of this is prosperity gospel preachers, the guys who say, name it and claim it. You, they're basically, here's what, prosperity gospel is this idea that, that um, God only wants to give you blessing. 
all right? And, and they stand in front of huge churches um, proclaiming that, that, that God wants to make you wealthy and healthy and successful, when the reality is that is not necessarily the call upon the Christian life. And what, they, what they're doing here is they're using God's name to get their real God. They're using God to get money or success or fame or whatever it is, a book deal. Again, using God's name to advance their own agenda. God, people have been using God's name in all kinds of terrible ways history and current events, we see the crusades, there's the demonization of the LGBT community, the demonization of the other political party, right? Everybody thinks that God is on their side, that God is for their agenda. Now, at the root of using God's name in vain, it is an attempt to access what we otherwise do not have access to. It is to use God's name in a way that gives us what we want without considering what God actually wants. It is to use God's name to open doors, to get access to things, to people that we don't actually have spiritual reality to. Now, I want to explain this with a, a familiar example or illustration for any of you who grew up with siblings, have younger kids. You, you have two kids here, and there's a door in between them. On one side, there's a kid on the inside of the house, locked door, and the other side is a kid who's wanting to get inside, right? Let me in, pounding, jiggling the door handle. Let me in, let me in. The kid on the inside, silent or maybe taunting them, you can't get in. Pounding, pounding, pounding. Kid can't get the door open. What does that kid on the outside say? He says, daddy says, open up. Boom, the door springs open, right? Why is that? Why does the door open up? It's because the child asserted the father's authority for that door to open up. Here's the reality, is that names open up doors. Think about that. Names open up doors. We get this, right? This is one of the reasons why we name drop, right? I know this person, and so now I can have access to you or to whatever is on the other side. Someone who is powerful and influential, if we use their name, we are given access or credibility on behalf of their name, right? Justin Bieber has a song and talks about his ex-girlfriend who can get into all these clubs using his name. It's the same idea. It's true. I'm not making it up. It's because powerful names open doors. Now, there is no name more powerful in the name of Jesus. Ephesians 1.20 says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, far above rule and authority and power and, and dominion. He is the name above every other name. Philippians 2.9 says that God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed upon him the name that is above every other name. Now, what does this mean? 
It means that Jesus' name can open doors that no one else's name can open. Tim Keller says it like this. I love it. He says, Jesus' name opens doors in the universe that no other name can. Jesus' name can put you through walls, put you through barriers, put you into places no other name can. The Axis Mundi. It brings you into the heart of the universe. It brings you into the center of all things. It makes you an heir of salvation and an heir of eternity, an heir of glory. But in order to access these doors, in order to get through these walls and these barriers, there has to be a spiritual reality to back it up. All right, this is what I mean. Go back to the kids at the door. Right? If daddy did, in fact, say, open up, it makes sense that the other child would open up. It's, a, it's a, an acknowledgement of authority. But here, if, if the child is bluffing on the other side of the door, the child who is locked, up said, locked out said, daddy said, open up, when daddy didn't say, open up, well, the child's not going to open up the door on the other side. There's no reality behind that use of the name. See, this is what, what it means for us to use the Lord's name in vain. It means to use his name in a way to gain access or favor while lacking the spiritual reality to back it up. It's, it's this idea of confusing what God wants with what I want. It's when we use God as a spokesperson for our own agenda when he isn't actually behind our agenda. See, in the public sphere, it's done in numerous ways. I've got a quote from a book here. It's a long one, so I put it up on the screen for you. It's, um, it's from Stephen Carter in his book, Taking God's Name in Vain. He says this, In truth, there's probably no country in the Western world where people use God's name quite as much or quite as publicly for as quite as many purposes as we Americans do, the third commandment notwithstanding. Few candidates for office are able to end speeches without asking God to bless their audience or the nation or the great work we are undertaking. But everybody is sure that the other side is insincere. Athletes thank God, often on television after scoring the winning touchdown, because like politicians, they like to think God is on their side. Churches erect huge billboards and take out ads in the paper. God's will is cited as the reason to be against gay rights and the reason to be for them. God is said not to tolerate poverty or abortion or nuclear weapons. Everybody wants to change America, and everybody who wants not to understands the nation's love affair with God's name, which is why everybody invokes it. See, this is done so often to put God behind my agenda, what I want. There's actually a, an example of this in the New Testament, this is kind of where we're going to sit for the rest of, of our, our time together, and that's in Matthew 7, if you want to flip there in your Bibles. Matthew 7, this is, this is where Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount towards the end of his discourse. And this is perhaps one of the most confrontational things that Jesus has ever said. And it just so happens that it, it is his exposition of the third commandment. This is Jesus unpacking what it means to use the Lord's name in vain. And so since this is Jesus who's talking to us, it is wise for us 
to incline our ears towards him. And so let's read chapter, uh, Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty, many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, what's going on here? What's happening? Well, we see people coming to Jesus, trying to gain access to the kingdom of heaven without the spiritual reality to back it up. And so what I want to do, I want to quickly examine these people here that Jesus is talking about. And, and, and I think as we go through this, it might be alarming. There's three things that I want to draw. It might be alarming because at first glance, these people seem like good people, right? It seems like they have, have it together in some sense. Here's the first thing I want to show you. These people are orthodox in their beliefs, They're theologically astute. They're calling Jesus Lord, which is his divine name. This isn't like a surname. He's not saying Sir Jesus. They are ascribing to him some sort of authority and power. And so they know who Jesus is. Their Christology might be on point. But here they are. They're lacking a spiritual reality to back it up. The second thing is that these people are emotionally engaged with who Jesus is. They say, Lord, Lord. Now, when you look at the Hebrew language and, and how they use their senses, what we use exclamation points and italics, um, punctuation, emojis to sort of um, uh, show our excitement or show, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? To show, I can't even, the intensity of emotion. But what Hebrew language would do would be use repetition to say, Lord, Lord. And so they're emotionally engaged with who Jesus is. And it's likely that, that these are people that would sing to Jesus with their hands lifted in the air, that they would talk about Jesus in sort of a, a tender way. But still, there's this lack of Reality. Third, these people are heavily involved in Christian service. They're doing things for God, right? They're saying, we go out and heal people, we cast out demons, we do charity, we feed people, we preach the good news. Now, when you stack these three things up, right, they're orthodox, they're emotionally engaged, they are doing Christian things, it seems like they have a convincing argument, They're saying, look at our theology, look at our enthusiasm, look at what we're doing. But Jesus says to them, I never knew you, depart from me. They don't get access to the kingdom of heaven. See, the door is not open to them. And what is it that they're missing I said it. It's this lack of spiritual reality that allows them to use Jesus' name. And I'm going to build that out here. And what's interesting here, Martin Luther, the great reformer, had a story similar to this. Before his, his real conversion, 
Luther was teaching in a seminary. He was a monk. He was doing all kinds of good things for God. But it wasn't until later on in his life where he realized that he was lacking a spiritual reality to actually call upon Jesus' name. See, to me, this is troubling, is it not? To think that you can have this, you can have the right theology, you can be excited about Jesus, you can be doing the right things, but still lack this reality and therefore miss out on the kingdom of heaven. So the question is, in fact, I think the most important question right now is how do I gain access to this spiritual reality? How can I authentically and truthfully use the Lord's name? Now, if you want to avoid breaking the third commandment, it's not just a matter of not taking the Lord's name in vain. It's it's a matter of using the Lord's name correctly. And I hesitate to say it like that because I don't want you to to start thinking that that we have to use Jesus' name in some sort of formula or some sort of uh, equation to get what we need. Right? It's not like you're going to say, you, it's not like you have to say Jesus or Lord at a certain point in a prayer in order to access the power of Jesus. That's not the case. But there is a certain manner which is right to use Jesus' name. So, what is it? How is it? To start, we need to understand what is Jesus' name. Now, if you jump back, I referenced it earlier, Philippians 2. Um, But in Philippians 2.11, we see Paul say that Jesus is Christ and Lord. We see Peter, the apostle Peter, say the same thing in Acts chapter 2. In fact, this is what it says, um, that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. And so to receive Jesus and to take on his name means to take on the reality of who he is. And he says that he is both Lord and Christ. So now what does that mean? What do those names mean? Both are important in understanding who Jesus is and what he has done, and the implications are far-reaching. And in fact, if we don't understand these two words, it's likely that we'll be in the same boat as the people in Matthew 7 who are dismissed from Jesus because these are essentially the two most important parts of our understanding of Jesus and what he's done. So let's dig in. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord in Christ? For Jesus to be Lord means that Jesus has absolute power and authority. And the Great Commission, when Jesus is getting ready to depart from earth, he tells his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. See, it's important to see that Jesus is in Lord because it means that he has absolute authority in both a cosmic sense where he is the one who who tells the, the sun to come up and go down each day. He is the one who's telling the earth to revolve and rotate. He's the one who commands the birds to sing and the mountains to stand up and the, and the waters to be still. So this is happening on a cosmic sense, but it's also happening in a deeply personal way. That it's Jesus who has authority over your life in all things. He's the one who directs you. Now, to see Jesus as Lord means that you have given up all rights. There is no override button in the life of a Christian, 
right? Jesus says this, there's no override button to say, I don't really feel like doing that. If Jesus is your Lord, then he directs you in which way you should go. And that means that you are in submission to his will. Now, what I want you to see here is that you can do good things for Jesus, like the people from Matthew 7, and not be in submission to God's will. In fact, that is one of the most misleading things that we can do as Christians, is to sort of pile up all the good things that we do and say, God, look at what I'm doing here for you. And while we're highlighting the stuff that we have done, all the Bible studies and MC and coming to church and serving and, and all the things that we do, what we really are doing is sort of distracting ourselves from the reality is that I have not turned over all of my life to Jesus. See, this is what the people in Matthew 7 have done. Hey, God, look what we have done for you. Look, Jesus, all of the stuff we've done. And, and, and you know what Jesus says? What does he say? What does he say? Here's he. He says, um, everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, not everyone, sorry. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And even at the end of that, he says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Even though that they've done all this stuff, they are not in submission to the Lord's will. Tim Keller says this, you take the name of the Lord in vain unless you are willing to say, I give up my independence. Show me what the will of the Lord is, and I will do it. I don't care how I feel. I don't care what my friends say. I don't care what the popular opinion is. I don't care what the experts say. Otherwise, you are taking God's name in vain. See, if you aren't ready to turn over all rights to Jesus, then he's not your Lord. And the other name that we need to look at is Christ, or, or the Greek Christos, which is the Greek word for saying the Hebrew word Messiah. Or in other words, Jesus is Savior. See, Jesus is the only Savior that is capable of delivering you from your sins and from your peril. Over the last month or so, um, my two-year-old has been really into um, Stories Like we like to make up stories and tell them together. And lately he's been really into a story about a dragon and a princess. And that's basically all he contributes is there's a dragon and a princess and then I'm, I'm left to make up the rest of it. Um, but it's really fun and it's actually a great, parents, I think it's a great exercise to, to tell your kids stories. And if you can do it in a way that takes parables of Jesus or stories from the Bible and maybe contextualizes it in a way that, that maybe resonates with them more. I mean, my kid lights up. I'm telling, every time I tell my kid this story about this dragon and a prince and a princess, I'm telling him the gospel story, right? I'm telling him Satan and death has come as this dragon to steal life from the princess, to keep her captive and locked away in a deep cave. And, and the dragon says to her, well, if you do this, then I'll let you out. And she does it, and the dragon says, no, you still need to do this, and this, and this. And so 
princess quickly realizes that she is incapable of, esca- of escaping the dragon's uh, 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 um, prisonhood or whatever. You know, he, he's got her trapped. She can't do anything about it. She needs somebody else to come and save her. And so that's where this prince comes in on the scene. The prince goes to war with the dragon and he's got a big sword and kills the dragon, frees the princess. See, that's the gospel story in a nutshell. And as I'm telling my kid this, what he's understanding is that he needs to be saved. There's, there's somebody, he needs somebody to work on his behalf to rescue him from sin and death. To see this is to see that Jesus is the prince who slays the dragon and gets the girl. Right? When nobody else could deliver the princess, Jesus is the one who does this. See, to call Jesus Christ or Savior means that you have come to grasp the grace of Jesus, that you have experienced his rescue in a profound and personal way. It means that you've come to the end of yourself, that you've realized that no volume of good works will ever free you from your sins. That unless that prince comes, you're forever trapped in the dungeon of the dragon. See, it means that you, the guilty, are counted guiltless because of Jesus, who is the guiltless one, died for the guilty. See, this is the gospel. And that as we trust Jesus and his work, his saving work, to free us from sin and death, that we find freedom. Not only that, we see Jesus as Savior. But when we see Jesus as Savior, we are so much more eager to see Jesus as Lord. If this is what God has done for me, if it's what Jesus has done to save me, he can have all of me. So when we see Jesus as Savior, not that it makes it easy. It's so hard to turn over yourself to the Lord. It's, I don't want to reduce it down to a simple thing. But you desire it. You have the desire to give yourself to Jesus and say, Lord, whatever you want to do with me, do it. And when we see Jesus as Savior and Christ, or Savior and Lord, there are some insane implications for this. Check this out. By being guiltless, by having your sin pardoned, forgiven, you are no longer under condemnation, but you are given access to God, right? That what Te- Keller, that quote about Keller, given access to the center of the universe. You're given access to God, but now you get to call him by a new name. Father. See, Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Because of what Jesus has done as Lord and Savior, we now have access to God, Yahweh, the mighty one, as our daddy. What an intimate name. 
that we now have for God. Right? The power of Yahweh is still there. All the cosmic beauty and, and holiness and glory is still there, but we get to draw near in an intimate way and call him Father. It means that we are adopted. We are his children now. Now just think for a moment of an orphan who has never had a father to call daddy. Right? And now, by adoption, they are brought into this new and intimate relationship and they get a look at a man and call him daddy. This is what the gospel does as Jesus makes us righteousness. It makes us righteous. We're given a new name for God. It's a special privilege that we have to call on the God of the universe, our Father. It's a special privilege to belong to him, but there's also great responsibility that comes with this because now we carry the family name. It's like a bride who takes on the name of her groom. We now carry the name of Christ. We are Christians. That should be the number one. If you are in Christ, that is the number one descriptor for who you are. You are a Christian. You carry the family name. It's, it means that you are bound up with Christ and he is bound up with you. And so in carrying this family name, it now means that we can fulfill the promise of the Old Testament to declare the glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among the peoples. Or as 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, that we are ambassadors, we are Christ's ambassadors as God makes his appeal through us. See, God is showing people what he is like through his children who carry his name. So carrying the family name is missional. Do you see that? To carry the family name is to broadcast what God is like in our city. It's the way that we live to honor God and to promote his glory and the glory and power of the gospel. It draws people into who Christ is and what he is capable of doing for broken people. Now, with this reality, it should cause us to examine our lives carefully. If we are indeed carrying the family name, we must examine ourselves. Am I honoring the Lord's name? Am I living my life in a manner worthy of the calling of the gospel? Or as Colossians 3, 7 prods, is everything I do in word and deed done in the name of the Lord Jesus? Does it represent him well? And what does this mean? What, what, what? Certainly, certainly it means that I'm putting my sin to death through faith and repentance. This is the, the lifelong process of a Christian, one that repeats over and over again, faith and repentance. That I'm addressing my besetting, besetting sins, that I'm fleeing from sexual immorality, from greed, from strife, from self-promotion, from gossip, from all the little sins that are in my life. Now, what we need to see here is that these little sins, we might downplay them, oh, that's just a little sin here. But these little sins are a big deal. These little sins are like holes in a bucket, right? That as they're there, they leak out the glory and honor of God's name in us. 
And so part of representing Jesus well means to address those holes in our buckets, those besetting sins, to plug them up so that Christ may be manifest in us. We have to address these issues. But what it ultimately means is that I am trusting Jesus as my Lord and my Savior, that I am 100% confident in the work that he has done to make me, to make me guiltless, and I'm depending 0% on my own self-righteousness or my own ability or my own heap of good works. This is what it means to represent Jesus, to trust in his name, to trust him as Lord and Savior. It means that you are in submission to his will as Lord and that you have a grasp of his grace as Savior. Now, as I close, I, I want to leave you with a passage from Colossians, and I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to convict you in the ways that you need to be convicted to, to lead you to repentance in the places where you need to, re to repent of so that you may bear the name of Christ in a way that honors him and brings glory to his name. So Paul, he's, he's writing to the Colossians. It's, it's sort of a prayer for his people, but it's, it's also sort of a charge. It comes from Colossians chapter 1, verses 10 through 14. Here it is. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Thank you, Father, for such a Savior and a Lord like Jesus who cares for us so deeply that he would go to the cross while we were sinning against him and while we were blaspheming his name and cursing him that he still went to the cross for sinners like us so that we may be forgiven and experience new life. Father, I pray that you would enable us to live in a manner that's worthy of the calling that you have put in our life, that we would represent Christ in all we do, whether we, in what we think and what we speak and what we do. Father, I pray that you would give us uh, a delight in carrying the family name. I pray that you would make us the type of people that outsiders look at and say, I want to know what's going on. Father, we thank you for what Jesus has done to give us access to you, that, that he has opened up your heart for us so that we can be brought in as your children. So we thank you in the powerful and mighty name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.